Well, it's been just a wonderful summer already, even though it did snow at camp. And uh, we are just grateful for what the Lord is doing in our flock. We had a wonderful concert with Keith Getty, and then to go to Hume, and here we are, Happy Father's Day, and then Summer Fest and Kids Fest this Wednesday is going to be fantastic. I always think that Mike Fabaris, who's with us this Wednesday night on Sola Fide, I always think Mike is one of the best Bible teachers in America. Heard hundreds of times on the radio each day, and I'm so thankful that he would give some of his time to come up with us and minister to the Word of God along with all that we have going on with our Kids Fest, so don't miss that. It, it will be hot, but it will cool down under the shade and by the river, and we're going to have a wonderful time in the five solas this Wednesday night on Sola Fide. So we want to make sure that you're at that. And Banks family, we're so thankful that they were with us and with us today. Make sure you greet them afterward. I want to just say a word of thanks to all the people who moved them in and all the people who served at Hume Lake. And um, we are very, very thankful. Make sure if you see Demo, he was in that wagon all week, and uh, that was uh, extra duty for him, but such a wonderful time to be there to see what the Lord is doing in so many people's life. Well, I said about a week ago or a couple weeks ago, we're going to take a little break from the Gospel of John and do a summer series here before us. I know that some are in and out a little bit. I will be in and out a little bit on some family vacation. Certainly, we want to come back, and we'll come back to John chapter 10 on the Good Shepherd. In fact, I, I'm anxious to begin John 10 on the Good Shepherd, but I thought with our summer, with a fluctuation of schedules, with so many in and out, that possibly here, just a, a summer series that would allow us to obviously focus on the exposition of Scripture that might be an instructive for us would be helpful. So I want to invite you to take your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to take us in these weeks ahead into the Sermon on the Mount. And so I want to begin that this morning, begin to look at that text this morning. And as we have opportunity, we'll work our way through the Beatitudes. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount provides one of the clearest descriptions in all of the New Testament on what Jesus wants us to be and do as his disciples. Certainly, probably a familiar text to you. Let me just go ahead and read, uh, let's say, down through verse 12. You follow along, seeing the crowds. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. May God bless the reading of his scripture. 
we come to the precious Word of God, which we love here at Grace Church. I personally love the Word of God. It has been my joy probably for the last 30 years to be in it close to 20 to 30 hours of every week, uh, 30 sometimes because I was teaching Sunday morning and Sunday night, and we love the Word of God. But we come here this morning to the Master Teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Master Teacher never rambled. Whenever he spoke, he had a theme. And there's a theme here in Matthew 5 through 7. If you take that New Testament, look back just one chapter and let me show you the theme. It's stated as such in chapter 4 and in verse 17 as Jesus began his ministry. It said from that time, in other words, this he began his, his if you will, his public ministry from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, and here's the theme, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so as he came on the scene, as he opened his mouth, he told people to repent. And then he announced, if you will, the arrival of his kingdom. Now certainly we don't have all the time to unpack there the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes it's the kingdom of God. But that kingdom is the rule of God. One day that kingdom will be a physical rule on this earth. For the, mon- for the momentary time that we have now, it's a rule in our hearts. In other words, when we see that phrase, the kingdom, it just simply but profoundly means that God is king over all. And certainly if you're a believer, he's king in your heart and over your life. And throughout this sermon... The kingdom is mentioned all over here in 5.3, 5.10, 5.19 and 20, 6.10 and 6.33. Now as we just unpack this on the Beatitudes, I want you to note something here very carefully on the primary audience. Always important to identify that. Look at chapter 5.1. We read it. It says that seeing the crowds... He went up on the mountain, which, by the way, is why we call it Sermon on the, what, Mount, but Sermon on the Mountain. So he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, look what it says there in 5.1. His disciples came to him. The crowds certainly are mentioned. He saw the crowds, but his focus in the Sermon on the Mount, as he came and sat on that mountain, were the crowds. Now certainly as you look greater in chapter 7, verse 28 and 29, you will see all the crowds. But his focus is the disciples. In fact, look at verse 2. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, and then he ushers into the Beatitudes. So the primary audience is the disciples. Just lock that in. G. Campbell Morgan, a pastor from the previous century, said, who are these men to whom he is speaking? Question mark. Here's the answer. Souls loyal to his kingdom. Well said. Who is this addressed to? It's addressed to us in the body of Christ. It's addressed to believers. It's addressed in 5.1 to the disciples. In fact, Campbell Morgan went on to say that no man can ever have the benefits of this kingdom until he has kissed the scepter of the king. And when a man, he said, is bowed to the king, 
then he has an obligation to the king and he must obey the law of the king. So beloved, Jesus spoke the sermon to those who are already his disciples and those who are children in God's family. In fact, what the Sermon on the Mount portrays is the repentance that's mentioned. Look back in 4.17. It says there, from that time, as we read earlier, Jesus began to preach saying, repent. And so this is for people, 4.17, who have repented, and this sermon becomes the righteousness of those who belong to the kingdom of God. I want to be expressly clear with you. The sermon does not show a man how to be saved, but it describes the characteristics of one who is saved. And so it's important that you recognize that as we walk into the Beatitudes, they are not entrance requirements in order to get into the kingdom, but descriptions of the character and blessings to those who are already in his kingdom. I think Martin Luther was real clear here. He said, Christ is saying nothing in this sermon about how we become Christians, but only about the works that no one can do unless he is already is a Christian and in a state of grace. And so Jesus, as you're going to see, is going to pronounce blessing, but the blessing comes to those who have entered into Christ's kingdom and repented. And I just make a little bit of a deal on that because if this point is misunderstood, then the sermon can become a series of legalistic demands by which you seek to pull up yourselves by your bootstraps. It is not that. The sermon, beloved, shows us how to live in obedience to our king. And so the Beatitudes then are ethics of grace, I call them. Or we could even say ethics of his kingdom. And the sermon presupposes an acceptance of the gospel. It answers what does repentance and what does commitment to the king look like. Now look down in your Bible in verse 3. Obviously you can see that in verse 3. In verse 4, verse 5, he pronounces a blessing. And the Greek word there is makarios. And it literally means, it shows here in ESV, uh, bless, you know, blessed is this person, but it means to be happy. It means to be blissful. And so I think it's kind of striking that when the king began his manifesto, the first thing he said was blessed. The first thing he instructed us in was happiness. But makarios, that word for blessed, differs from the world's idea. The world's happiness is based on circumstances. The world's happiness is based on wealth. The world's happiness is based on health. The world's happiness is based on power. It's about this world, the here and now, this kingdom. Get it while you can, while it's to be get. And that is what the world is all about. In fact, in his screw tape, screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis had the archdevil screw tape advise his apprentice demons on the lure of happiness. And here's what... He instructed them on. He called it, quote, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the world. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That is the world. But when you, beloved, see this term here that we'll look at in the weeks to come, 
The blessing here, or to be blessed, if you will, is an inner joy. And it is always in the scripture independent of one's circumstance, independent of one's lot in life. So as we begin this sermon, it is paradoxical in nature. I mean, it would appear absurd in the world today that the blessing comes to you who are poor in spirit, that the blessing comes to those who are mourning over their sin, that blessing comes to you hungering and thirsting, not after the sensuality of the world, but to those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It is an absolute paradoxical sermon that he gives. Because the world would say the healthy, the wealthy are blessed. But in his kingdom, it is the poor in spirit. It is those who mourn over their sin. It is those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness that are blessed. So let's look at that first beatitude just by way of introduction today. And certainly you've seen this before. But it's there in verse 3. It says, blessed, does Jesus say, are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's look at that first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In fact, there are eight beatitudes in all. But let's look at that first one. And here's what I want to do with you this morning. I want to look first at what poor in spirit does not mean. And when that comes off to you as you're sitting there with Bible open and maybe pen in hand, and you hear blessed are the poor in spirit, I want to address first what does poor in spirit not mean. Then secondly, what does poor in spirit mean, obviously, as Christ gives it? And then thirdly, how do I know if I'm poor in spirit? So even though some of you students maybe down here finished school, I'm going to give you another test, even though you finished a couple weeks ago. And this is for all of us, because these are ethics of the kingdom. And I would venture to say that as our church is obedient to the Lord, this is obviously the ethic of grace. This is the ethic of his kingdom. This is what we want in our life. And certainly you can say this is how you enter the kingdom, but it's more, as I said, these are how we live out our obedience to the king. So first, what poor in spirit does not mean, okay? What it does not mean. First, it doesn't mean to be depressed or to be downcast. In other words, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, He's not, he's not talking about a human quality. He's not talking about walking around saying that life's a bummer. He certainly isn't talking about Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. You know that character? Oh, yeah, the sky is falling. You know, some people are just like that. They tend to be downcast. They, they, they tend to be depressed. When the cuff's half full, they can see it half what? empty and some people even have a naturally melancholic spirit if you will a woe is me there's no enthusiasm for life there's no drive for life some people appear under a cloud they even appear that they tend to be in a fog but listen we already said that the beatitudes describe an inner joy that is independent of circumstances so most clearly Jesus is not addressing or describing one who is downcast or one who is depressed just by the mere circumstances. Secondly, poor in spirit does not mean that someone is self-effacing and insecure. He's not addressing a self-effacing insecurity. And what I mean by that is people who walk around, it's not what it means, that God can't use me, 
oh, I'm just an average Christian, or I can't witness, or I'm even a horrible Christian. He's not talking about a self-pitying person. He's not even necessarily addressing here someone who is nervous, or someone who is weak, or someone who is vacillating, or someone who by way of temperament may be naturally weak or insecure. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, his wonderful book, one of the best five books I ever read, is his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And here's how he described what poor in spirit does not mean in his commentary. He's giving this illustration, and here's how he said it. He said, when I arrived on Saturday evening, a man met me at the station and immediately asked for my bag. In other words, he took a train, he's preaching somewhere on the Lord's Day. He said, then the man talked to me like this, quote, I am a deacon in the church where you are preaching tomorrow. And then he added, you know, I am a mere nobody, a very unimportant man, really. He said, I do not count. I am not a great man in the church. I am just one of those men who carry the bag for the minister. And Lloyd-Jones said he was anxious that I should know what a humble man he was, how poor in spirit he was, yet by his anxiety to make it known that he was, he said he was denying the very thing that he was trying to establish. So listen, beloved, poor in spirit is not self-effacing insecurity. To be poor in spirit is not mock humility, okay? Thirdly, poor in spirit is not, just trying to unpack this, it is not suppression of personality. When you think of someone who's poor in spirit, it's not somebody who is choosing or thinking they need to suppress their personality. In fact, I'm thinking of the woman's role that sometimes... In the days, it seems like not anymore, but in the older days, they would say that a woman needs to be quiet and meek, and certainly that's a biblical concept. But I think it's important to recognize that a woman's quietness and meekness in 1 Timothy 3 is before who? Before the Lord. And so sometimes I think we'd have a wrong view if if a spouse, such as a woman, isn't to interact with her husband as though she's to be meek and quiet and not point out his sin but it is meek and quiet before God. And my point there is that the meekness and the gentleness and the quietness is more to be an internal principle that reflects itself in an outward quality, obviously. But I don't think here, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, that he's talking about the suppression of personality. Fourth, let me say what poor in spirit is not. He's not talking about becoming, just for the sake of a word, a monk, okay? You need to avoid the temptation to think that the one who is poor in spirit is the person who makes great sacrifices such as a missionary. That's not what Jesus is addressing here. And the reason I would say that right off the bat is to be poor in spirit is not something you do. To be poor poor in spirit is something you are in the realm of the spirit. So don't think about our missionary basis or any of that or any pastoral staff, any of that who have given their life to the ministry. I don't think he's talking about some kind of external trapping. And uh, fifth, let me say this, to be poor in spirit, and I just need to say this, it does not mean that you are physically poor. Now, it's interesting that in Luke's gospel, it just says poor and it doesn't put in pneumatai, in the spirit, Okay, but here, when Jesus addresses this beatitude, he's talking about being poor in spirit, and it does not mean that you are physically poor. To be poor in spirit is not the opposite of being materially rich. Listen, this would be true. 
You can possess nothing. You can give everything away, and you can still lack this quality. So he's not talking about being materially poor here. I mean, if it, if it was talking about this, if this were true, the last thing you would ever do as a believer is help someone out of their poverty. Because in doing such, you would actually be hindering their happiness. I mean, whatever you do, don't give to orphanages. Whatever you do, don't give to missions. Whatever you do, don't give assistance to worn, torn countries. Because if he's talking about physically poor, then you could be pulling him out. But most assuredly, he's not talking about that. You say, if that's not what poor in spirit does not mean, then what does it mean? Thanks for asking, okay? So secondly then, what's Jesus talking about here in 5.3 when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, as we dive into the biblical word here, two words in the Greek language describe that phrase there, poor in spirit. And first I'm going to highlight poor. There's different words in the Greek language, just like there's different words for love in the Greek language. This is where the language can help. There's a word in the Greek language, and it's this. It's called penes, P, just for the sake of a transliteration, P-E-N-E-S, penes. And it describes someone who is poor, but it's describing someone biblically who worked for a living. So in the Bible, and even in classical Greek, it was a working man, but this working man was not destitute. That is not the word that is used here in the Sermon on the Mount. The word that he uses here in the Sermon on the Mount is a Greek term called patoikos, okay? Don't worry about it if you can't spell it, okay? But, but patoikos, and what that word means is it means to shrink, it means to cower. It means to cringe like a beggar is what the word means. In classical Greek, it referred to one who was reduced to being a beggar in the dark corner, okay? The picture here is that of a cowering, cringing beggar who has one hand held out for alms and with the other hand, he's covering his face because he's ashamed of being recognized. So whenever you see that word patoikos, okay, it describes one who is totally destitute. In fact, you remember, even in John's gospel, beggars were, awful, were often crippled, they were often blind, they were often deaf, if you will, and they couldn't f function in the society, and so they had to beg. And so they would be laid at the temple gate. They would be put at the pool, and you remember that from John 5 and from John chapter 9. And so here, Jesus is describing someone who is poor. Remember what it says in 3? Look at it again. They're poor in spirit. And what Jesus is saying is this, blessed is the man. Or blessed is the woman who is begging on the inside. Who is begging, if you will, on the inside in his spirit. Or in her spirit. Or begging, if you will, in their heart. So let me zero in more exactly what it means. To be poor in spirit. And remember, I could say that you enter the kingdom this way. That's okay. I mean, you enter the kingdom this way, but he's really giving us the ethics of what happened in chapter 4. 
Those who have repented. Those who have believed. Those who have entered into his kingdom. But to be poor in spirit is to be spiritually bankrupt on the inside before a holy God. He's describing here spiritual poverty. Let me contrast it. It's the opposite of pride that our world clamors after. It's the opposite of self-assertiveness. It is the opposite, beloved, of a self-sufficient spirit. It is certainly the opposite in John's gospel of self-righteousness. Just think back to those two guys in Luke 18 where the Pharisee said, I thank God that I'm not like this man, you know, this, this piece of dirt, if you will, for look what I have done, remember? That, that's the self-righteous Pharisee. Far from being poor in spirit, he's proud. Far from having a true righteousness, he's self-righteous. And far from being dependent on Christ and on God, he's dependent on himself and on his works and on his righteousness and thinks he has something to offer. Listen, when you enter into Christ's kingdom, you come this way, but he wants you to remain this way. It is the absence of pride, okay? It is the absence of self-assurance. It is the absence of self-reliance. Here's what Jesus is saying. You are destitute in the realm of the spirits. In other words, you have nothing and you are in need of everything is the thought. One said it this way, one commentator, he said, poor in spirit is to recognize your total spiritual destitution and complete dependence on God. You have no resources in yourself and can only plead for God. He said, you know you have no spiritual merit, and in that sense, your pride is gone, your self-assurance is gone, and you stand, if you will, empty-handed before God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. It is total honesty before God, no duplicity before God, no hypocrisy before God, but if you will, broken and bankrupt before God. Maybe let me just highlight this from some other scriptures. I think they'll come up on the screen. Up in Isaiah, maybe remember when it says this in Isaiah, for thus says the one who is high, the one who is lifted up, God, the one who inhabits eternity, he's omnipresent, whose name is holy. He said, I dwell in the high and holy place, but here it is. Also with him who is contrite and what? Lowly of spirit. In other words, there it is to be poor in spirit. He's dwelling with those who are contrite, broken over their sin, and lowly in spirit. You know, it's just funny just for me to say this. Do you think once you become a Christian that we could become prideful? No, actually... What the scripture is saying is you enter in as a beggar, you remain as a beggar. And so if you think you ought to get to some kind of, some super hop or some super maturity, no. Jesus begins his manifesto of the king and he says, I want to pronounce a blessing on those who are poor in spirit, the ones who are contrite and lowly of spirit. Then there's another place in the book of Psalms. You certainly remember this there. The Lord is near, what? The brokenhearted. 
And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. This doesn't necessarily describe someone who's only in a trial. I think we ought to be brokenhearted, and I think we ought to be before him all the time as spiritual beggars. Psalm 51, remember after David said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. There's the teaching of Scripture. There is what it means to be poor in spirit. And certainly, the, the man who was the tax collector in Luke 18 said, Oh God, be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. He knew his condition before a holy God. And of course, Jesus said in Luke 18, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other, right? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now listen, let me be clear. Poor in spirit doesn't mean that you, as a believer, lack self-confidence, but it does mean that you have an awareness of your utter nothingness as you come into the presence of God. Listen, there's a lot of people who can recite the Apostles' Creed. But have we missed this? Have we missed this? I mean, certainly we come not only in our salvation broken, but in terms of our sanctification, we are emptying ourselves of any self-righteousness and glory-seeking acceptance from others. In other words, you realize you are helpless apart from Christ. You are emptied of pride. And it's at this point that God blesses us. In fact, look back at the text. I don't want you to miss this. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy is the man. Happy is the woman who is poor in spirit. And you say, well, why would there be blessing? Well, this is what's key. Look at 5.3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And here's why. For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. And I just want you to know, some of the other Beatitudes are put in a future tense. And certainly, if you glance down at chapter 5, look at it there. When it says in verse 12, excuse, excuse me, 5.12, rejoice and be glad for your reward in, is great where? In heaven. There's a future reward, but he's not talking future here. Look at it again in 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a present tense reality. I want to make this clear to you, okay? This is not a reward for being poor in spirit. This is a recognition of what you already possess back in chapter 4, 417 and 423. You are blessed because as you sit here, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So you may be able to let other people walk over you. And you may not be the person that's going to stab someone in the back in business to get in front. You may be looked over because you're not as assertive as other people. But listen, beloved... Blessed are you for yours and even now are you are the recipient, if you will, of the kingdom of heaven. You possess the kingdom of heaven. In other words, when he saved you, he brought you into that spiritual kingdom where Christ reigns and rules in your heart. And here's the implication. It is the lowly. It is the humble 
that possess the kingdom. Listen, the world may hate you. Your family may think you're strange, but yours even now as we speak is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, look back just at chapter 4, verse 17. I mean, just to show it there, to show you again, he, he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at what? It's at hand. It's right now. And so as we sit here, we already own a kingdom. You don't need to manipulate your kingdom now. You don't have to crawl over everybody to get on top. His kingdom looks different. If this, Jesus, remember in the garden, he said, if this world were my kingdom, my servants would be what? Fighting. He would have called on a thousand legion of angels or legion of angels and come and shut that down. But this kingdom, we, it's a future kingdom, but it's a kingdom right now ruling and reigning in our hearts. But you might be sitting there and you say, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm poor in spirit? Can I just give you seven practical principles to see if you're poor in spirit? Obviously, this is something that is ours, but it's something that we must become at the same time. Let me just see if we can discern from my own heart, I was greatly convicted, and in your heart, if you're poor in spirit. And I've developed these from Thomas Watson's book on the Beatitudes and another Puritan by the name of Jeremiah Burroughs. I've adapted them. But here's how you'll know if you're poor in spirit. And would it be that all of our marriages would be marked by this? Would it be that all of our relationships will be marked by this? Would it be that as you came today, it wouldn't be about yourself, but it would be about others and God himself? But number one, if you're poor in spirit, you will be weaned from self. You will be weaned from self. In other words, a person who is poor in spirit has lost his sense or her sense of self. In other words, all one thinks about is glorifying God and meeting the needs of others. The poor in spirit are divorced from themselves. Why? Because it's about his kingdom. It's about other people. It's about loving God. It's about loving others. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, that we are better than someone else, he said, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but the devil, he said. He said, the real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty object. And he said, it's better to forget about yourself altogether. Listen, when you're poor in spirit, when you're broken over the spirit, you men won't be fighting with everybody around you. You won't be fighting with your spouse. You'll be so broken, such a beggar before the throne of God that it won't be about you. Somebody said that humility is not thinking merely about yourself, but then they said it's actually not thinking about yourself at all. So let me just ask you, is that you? Are you weaned from self? Okay. Do you have to have it your own way? Or are you entering into his kingdom broken and poor in spirit and remaining in that kingdom broken and poor in spirit? But secondly, here's another way to test if you're poor in spirit. Is secondly, you will never complain about your situation. You'll never complain about your situation. If you're poor in spirit or filled with the spirit, you will never complain about your circumstances because you know that you don't deserve anything. You will suffer without complaining because you deserve nothing. 
In other words, you already have the kingdom. You don't need to fight for your kingdom. You already have the kingdom, and the kingdom's now ruling in your heart, and there's a future kingdom coming to you. Is that you? Are you complaining about your situation, dads or moms or students? Have you lost sight that we come into the kingdom as beggars and we ought to remain as a beggar? That we ought to be before God when we wake up every day broken over our own sin, humble before God, contrite and lowly, seeking his face? Thirdly, when you're poor in spirit, you will see the virtues and strengths in others. It's a good test. A person who is poor in spirit will see only the excellencies of others, and his own weakness and sinfulness. In fact, you would be happy when, and content when others eclipse you. And I, I got to tell you, I just was convicted right there. Because I, I think sometimes I have expectations in my heart of what people should do and be. And, and, and I think sometimes I can see weaknesses rather than the strengths in others. But listen, when you're broken, and when you're poor, and when you're a beggar, if you will, in terms of the Spirit, you're going to see the virtues and the strengths in other people, and you'll accentuate them. I, I think as a young pastor, I would get frustrated with people at times. And sometimes if you're gifted in a certain way, you have an expectation that certain people ought to be performing this way. And I realize that often, far from being helpful or even being a leader, that can be prideful. And I'm reminded that even when you begin to look at the gifts mentioned both in Ephesians 4 and in Romans 12, they talk about humility. But when you and I are poor in the Spirit, you're going to see the virtues and strengths in others, okay? You will be broken over your own sin. You will claim with Paul to be the chief of sinners. You will think like Paul in Philippians 2 to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as what? More important than yourself. Listen, I just would share a word with you. This is where marriage is struggle. I remember I, I, you know, within every marriage, you need to have ambivalence to hold the strengths and maximize the strengths and minimize the weaknesses. But if you get caught in a marriage where you're just at each other's throat and you don't see the virtues and strengths in others and even the people that live in your home, you'll bite and devour one another, Galatians 5, and you'll be consumed by one another. But here, when you're walking in the Spirit, when you're poor in spirit, you'll do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, you'll, let each, you'll regard each of another person as more important than yourself. Number four, if it's not convicting enough, you'll know you're poor in spirit, and here's why. I think it was Watson who said this. You will spend time in prayer. You'll spend time in prayer because a beggar is always begging He's knocking at heaven's gate all the time. And he doesn't let go until he is blessed. Burroughs, the Puritan, said the poor spirited man is a praying man or a praying woman. He said there is none that are truly poor in spirit but are great praying Christians. So you'll spend time in prayer. Number five, you will take Christ 
on his terms. He will take Christ on his terms. You say, what do I mean by that? Well, the proud sinner always adds Christ to his pleasure, Christ to his covetousness. But the one who is poor in spirit is so desperate that they will give up anything to obtain Christ. In fact, Watson said it this way, you will behead your beloved sin. In other words, you just come to Christ with a blank check. You'll just come before him in the morning, God, I, you have all of me. You have every bit of me. You have every bit of my person. Every breath that I take, every movement and decision today, I want you to be glorified. You won't be hiding private sin. You will come and you will want him and you will take Christ on his terms. Here's what Burroughs said. He said, the poor in spirit are those that shall lie down flat before the Lord and say, here I am and let God do with me whatever he will. And Burroughs said, I do not expect to have myself to be chooser of anything that I desire. You're not chooser. You come, I mean, this is how we ought to wake up, beloved, every day. This is the spirit, poor in spirit, that the Lord wants us to have, even as a church. That you give your life to God. You give your life, as we heard this week at Hume Lake, as a blank check before God, and let him write that for you. But number six, number six, you'll know you're poor in spirit if you praise and thank God. <laughs> when you are poor in spirit, you will praise and thank him all the time for his grace. You will express overwhelming gratitude toward God because you know that everything you have is a gift from him. And those who are poor in spirit are filled with thanks. Are you? I'm asking myself that too. I had a problem with our water and thankfully it got remedied. Did I tell you this? I don't know what happened. We just had normal water flow in our house. And all of a sudden, something happened. I don't know what happened. I don't know what goes on under the ground. And I don't know what happens in the root system. And so I, I felt like I'm living in a third world country. I'm in a shower and I'm trying to run. You know, I mean, it's just ting, 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 ting. I mean, something happened. And so a plumber came over and my pool pump exploded. And some of the plastic from this pump got in the system and got in the filter. And it, but, you know, there was my godly wife saying, Scott, you should be able to give thanks for all things, you know. And I'm like, but this stinks, though. Come on. It was better in the Philippines when I pour a bucket over my head, you know. And, uh, but listen, when you and I are poor in spirit, you'll praise and thank God for everything. See, we have expectations and, and we just ought to be so glad that he saved us, right? We ought to just be so glad that he redeemed us. Burroughs, Burroughs said this, speaking of the world. He said, the world? He said, they are, troubled, uh, they, they are troubled with their afflictions so much and that their mercies are so little. He said, but the poor-spirited man or woman, he wonders that his mercies are so little and that his afflictions are so little and therefore he is thankful for very little. Is that you? I mean, 
I mean, I was just crushed by this. I don't care if you became a Christian 30 years ago. Does this describe you and me even now? That you're going to praise and thank him for everything? Number seven, and finally, you will tremble at his word. And I'm basing that on Isaiah 66 2. To this man will, will I look, even to him who is poor and contrite of spirit and that trembles, there it is, at my word. Burroughs said, when he comes to the word, he hears it opened. And he looks upon it as having a dreadful authority in it. He looks, and we understand what he means by that. He looks upon the word as a thing to be above him. And his heart trembles lest he should not give it the due respect that the word of the word that he ought to do. Do you tremble at his word? Are you in his word? I pray that you would be in his word. If you're poor in spirit, you're going to tremble at his word. You're going to open your text up in the morning or in the night, and you're going to say, Lord, speak your truth to me. So how can you know if you're poor in the spirit? Number one, you'll be weaned from self. Number two, you'll never complain about your situation. Number three, you will see the virtues and strengths in others. Number four, you'll spend time in prayer. Number five, you'll take Christ on his terms. Number six, you'll praise and thank God. And number seven, you will tremble at his word. Listen, as I thought about this, I thought all of these are bound up in the person of who? The Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, here is the gospel in miniature. If there was ever anybody weaned from himself, it was Christ. He came down only to do the will of his Father. If, if there was ever anybody who was this, it was Christ. He would never complain about his situation. He only came to please him. He came only to obey him. And when you think about, you will see the virtues and strengths in others. That's Christ looking over and past the disciples' sin and their failure of faith at times to build into them a group of men that would change the world. If there was ever any man who was poor in spirit, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Often in the Gospels, going up to the mountain. In fact, right before this text in the other Gospel, he went up to the mountain and prayed all night and called his disciples. Then he came down from the mountain. They sat before him on the mountain. He opened his mouth and he said, here's what the ethics of grace look like. But he spent time with his father and beloved. You know that if he was God and he was also man and he depended on his father, then how great should our prayer lives be? What should our prayer time look like as a church? You think of number five, you, I said it here, you will take Christ on his terms. Certainly he took God on his terms. Not my will be done, but your will be done. He praised and thanked God for everything. In fact, on the cross is one of the men across from him at the cross. He said, today you'll be in paradise with me. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what, what they do. He was always praising and thinking, and he trembled at his word when he was tempted, as you know, by the devil. He opened his mouth three times and said, it is written. You know, some of you might say genuinely so, I have given up everything. I've given up my reputation. I've given up my finances. I've given up my time. I've given up my talents. I've given up my energy for God's kingdom. There were many people giving their energy last week to our students. And I would say to you, praise the Lord. And here's what you get. Not as a reward, but as a blessing. 
you get the kingdom of heaven. See, when I looked at this, this isn't really like a harsh message. The emphasis is on the blessing that comes to you because yours already is the kingdom. Listen, you get God now. You get a new body later. You get everlasting life. And in the future, a place where there's no more sin, no more death, no more suffering, and everlasting peace and fellowship with God. You get it all. So you got to walk out of here being blessed. You ought to take your trial, my trial, your trial. Some are smaller and greater than others. But you ought to say, listen, you're blessed. You're happy. You're blissful. Not based on your circumstance, but based on the fact that yours is the kingdom of heaven. Think about this scripture in Mark 10. Peter said, we've left everything and followed you. Here it is. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, I love this line, who will not receive a hundredfold, what? Now. Now. In this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And then he honestly says, with persecutions, but in the age to come, what? Eternal life. Listen, we ought to orient our future towards heaven. I mean, I don't know how to quite say it. If you're in here and he's forgiven you all your sins and he's taken them and scattered them, if you will, as far as the east is from the west, if he's buried your sin in the deepest part of the sea, if he declares upon you this morning and you already have that status because of your repentance and belief, the status of no condemnation, then I'm just saying, beloved, we ought to be the happiest people on earth, right? Not in terms of the world's power, but in terms of Christ's kingdom, Look at this verse, 1 Peter 3, and we're all done. 1, 3, actually. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us sovereignty to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Listen, I suppose, probably cheesy to say it, but Golden State Warriors can take that crown, whether it's them or the previous year, the Cleveland Cavaliers, but that thing's going to burn in the end. If you're here this morning and you're honoring Christ, you have an inheritance that is imperishable. You have an inheritance that is undefiled. You have an inheritance that is unfading, that it's actually kept in heaven for you It says there, by God's power, and it's being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You say, why does it say salvation to be ready and revealed in the last time? Because this isn't the end of your salvation. Oh, you're saved, I'm saved, but there's salvation present. We sometimes look past, I was saved, I'm in the the present tense, and being saved, sanctified, but then there's a future salvation called glorification, and that is all kept by the power of God, and it's going to be reserved and given to you. So, beloved, I say to you, go be who you need to be. But here's ethics of the kingdom. 
Here's the life that Jesus wants to live. The emphasis isn't being poor in spirit. The emphasis is on the blessing that is yours. Amen? Stand with me. Stand with me. And we won't have a closing song today. Let me pray for you. Go out and encourage someone today. Pray with someone today. Guard your heart. But let's make it be that we become a church of spiritual beggars on the inside. Don't ever think you're going to come to a place where, I, I, you know, I just close with this. This one's just for free. I've seen people tell me, well, Pastor Scott, I've been in prayer sessions with a particular person, and once I went into that prayer session, it just changed the rest of my life. I became something that I've never been before. And I've had people tell me this. It was this one experience, this one time, this one thing. And I thought, I don't think the Christian life works that way. Just encourage you. If you feel like you're a beggar and you're dependent on him today, welcome to the kingdom. That's how we should be all of our life. We enter in as a beggar. We remain as a beggar. You never get to a place where you take some holy hop or some baptism of the Spirit where you no longer struggle. Jesus said, this is what life looks like in the kingdom. Would it be that we'd be a church of beggars? Amen? Let me pray. Father, bless us. Direct us. You have blessed us. Father, if, if we're in Christ, you forgave all of our sins. And it even says to Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, both now and in the future. It's now and not yet. But Father, we're already experiencing that according to Romans 14, that the kingdom of God is love and joy and righteousness. And he already said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If there's any here who have never entered, would it be that they'd come this day, that they'd repent of their sin, that, Father, they'd believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that, Father, you could rescue them from hell and give them the kingdom of heaven today. But here's the turnstile upon which comes in. It's not through self-righteousness. It's not through self-assertiveness. It's back in chapter 4 of repenting and then in the gospel of John of believing. So, Father, do your work. Thank you for the wonderful week we've had with the Getty concert. Thank you, Father, for Hume. Thank you for those who tirelessly served. And, Father, we look forward to Wednesday night to understand the doctrine of faith alone. Give us joy this day. Your blessing resides on us. We give thanks for the Lord Jesus Christ and everyone said, amen. Have a wonderful day.